Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we are lucky enough to have Julie Shaw with us. And Julie, and this is a mouthful, is an assistant professor at MIT in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Oh, actually, can I, can oh, I yeah. stop you? Oh, yeah, sure. Sorry about that. I'm actually an associate professor. Oh, associate Thanks. professor. Sorry. All right. Associate yeah. professor. Sorry about that. Good. I'm glad you stopped. Associate professor, um, and she's in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Uh, and leads the interactive uh, robotics group in the CSAIL, uh, which is known as the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. So, and Julie's research is quite fascinating. It's all around collab- collaborative robots, which is the study of how humans and robots will interact or how robots interact with each other. So, so some of her work definitely reminds me of Tony Stark's robots in his uh, machine shop, uh, except Julie, Julie's robots are actually real. Um, and uh, so a lot of our work revolves around collaborative robots and manufacturing, disaster response, and space ex- exploration. So I invited Julie on the show to hear more about her research and what she sees for the future of collaborative robots. So Julie, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Was, was there anything else in the intro that uh, we need to uh, revise? <laughs> or was no, that okay? good. All right, that's good. All right. Good. All right. So let's... Uh, uh, start with your background. I'm curious to see how you got to be a, at MIT and what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I've i actually done all my degrees at MIT. Um, I did my, my PhD here in artificial intelligence, um, focusing uh, especially on automated planning and scheduling, so how you can get machines um, to do planning and scheduling tasks for us. And, um, and I sort of specialized in how these machines could support people in, in making decisions and in uh, making robots smart enough to work collaboratively with people. Um, my background is, is actually, uh, my undergrad degree was actually in aeronautics and astronautics here at MIT. And so I focus on human-machine collaboration in time-critical, safety-critical domains, um, places where um, safety is important and, um, and, and timing really matters. That interaction has to be basically perfect for the system to add value. Interesting. And so growing up, how, you know, did you decide you want to go to MIT? I and mean, it's not easy, of course, to get in, but um, how did you decide you want to go to MIT? Like, when did you get interested in kind of this space? Oh, so for me, um, I grew up loving space and loving planes huh. and, um, and wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And MIT has um, one of the best, if maybe not arguably the best, um, program in aerospace engineering. So that was always my dream. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, and I, um, yeah, and, um, and it turns out, you know, growing up, I'd tell everybody I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And everybody would say, oh, that's so specific. <laughs> um, and so I came to MIT thinking, you know, this is a very specific thing to major in. And then you, 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 start studying aerospace engineering and what you realize is that it's a broad discipline it's a systems discipline um there's many many different areas you can specialize in and i really became interested in um human machine interaction with um, autopilot control systems and then um higher level um decision making systems that that supported people in these jobs interesting okay huh and so let's talk uh 
talk a little bit about what you're working on now. I mean, you have, you have a number of projects. Um, I don't know if you want to go through all of them, you, or you could list the, you know, kind of the top two or three um, projects you're working on. That would be uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the work in my lab, everything we do is focused on trying to harness the relative strengths of people and machines working together. Um, and so the real question is, how can we make a machine or a robot smart enough um, to work together with us in a team? Um, and we look at both teamwork and sort of physical collaboration, um, and we look at teamwork and sort of decision-making support. Um, how do we... How do, how do people bring their information together to decide how they're going to team even? Um, so in, sort of, in terms of physical interaction, um, we deploy robots to work alongside people in factories um, to improve the efficiency with which we can build planes and build cars. Um, so that requires, if a robot's going to, you, know, you imagine robots in factories, but they're usually caged and they're usually physically separate from people and you can just pre-program them to do the same thing over and over. Um, if you have a reason to make that robot actually work alongside people or do any work that's interdependent with people, well, the problem is that people don't work like robots. So the robot now needs to be able to quickly make decisions on the sequencing of its work, the timing of its actions, so that it can effectively coordinate with other people and, and other robots on the line. Um, so we have, a, um, uh, we have an area of our research where we develop fast algorithms for um, scheduling robot work or adapting robot motions um, so that the person robot can sort of team on building a car, building a plane, more the way that people work together to do that. Um, and then on the other side, we develop machines that um, model human decision-making. Um, how in a conversation do we even decide how we're going to work together? Who's going to do what and in what order? Um, it, it requires sort of inferring our partner's mental state, like what, what are they currently thinking? What do they currently understand about what we said? So we design machines that are able to do those sort of inference tasks so that they can participate in the conversation for just figuring out the plan, which then you would go used to, for example, build a plane or a car or deploy an emergency response team. Interesting. And so with the decision-making, how can you give an example of what kind of a project you're working on? And, yeah, then you might want to dive a little deeper into that. But Yeah, so, um, so in one of our projects, what we're trying to do is listen to natural human conversations, like in a, in a meeting, mm-hmm. where you're just going to plan um, – you're, you're planning some progress on a task um, and you're making decisions about who's going to do what. What we want to do is listen to that natural language and try to infer a few things. One is, um, you know, if the team's going to work together, you want to try to figure out whether they're on the same page, whether they have a consistent understanding of what they agreed upon. Um, and then if they do, well, then you want to try to figure out, well, what is it they've actually agreed upon? Because that's what that's what forms the shared plan that you're then going to go execute. And um, in many cases, people, I guess we all are in meetings every day, so <laughs> probably, it probably makes sense, but we leave meetings and there's confusion. Um, not everybody was on the same page or what we think we agreed upon actually doesn't make sense when we go to try to execute. Um, and so we're working on machines that can perform these inference tasks. Are we, are we in consensus? What have we agreed upon? Um, if we're not in consensus or if what we've agreed upon is logically inconsistent or doesn't make sense in some way, 
um, we designed the machine to actually um, involve itself in the conversation, uh, help us strengthen our shared understanding or fix up the plan. Wow. Okay. That does sound like the future. Uh, so, so, and can you provide like an exact example of, you know, what, uh, you know, what kind of conversation you had and then what the robot was supposed to do, or maybe the robot pushed back on something because it wasn't, uh, you know. Yeah. 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 So, um, so we developed this capability, um, to, with, with the motivation of supporting emergency response teams. Um, so, uh, you know, every situation is very fluid and, um, uh, and the sort of quality of the team's execution is really dependent on, um, their, their sort of shared understanding of what they, they thought they should go out and execute. And even small weaknesses in that shared understanding can have like very, very significant consequences result in, um, wasted resources, delays, which can be costly in terms of time and money and maybe, um, safety of people. So, um, you know, the motivation was emergency response. Um, and so, um, the, ultimately we developed a machine learning technique. Um, any machine learning system needs like a training data set to learn about, um, in this case, learn about our conversation and patterns in our conversation. Um, so we actually, we need a publicly available large data set to train the system on, um, on, uh, conversation in, in team planning. And there is a publicly available data set, but it involves many teams of four people designing a remote control. Hmm. Um, it's annotated, publicly available, but really looks nothing like an emergency response team doing their planning. Um, but it's what we had. And there's, um, there's uh, literature in cognitive and behavioral psychology that tells us, well, it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about a remote control or emergency response or any number of other domains, the patterns of information exchange um, tend to be very similar. And, and how we exchange information relates to our shared consensus. So if we spend our whole meeting asking each other questions, we're probably not going to leave with a very solid understanding. Um, but if we fully exchange information related to the task, I make some proposals, you accept those proposals, I confirm them, um, then we're much more likely to leave on the same page. So we, we actually train our machine learning system from this corpus of data of people discussing the design of remote controls. And then we deployed it um, in experiments where we had teams of two people come into the lab and plan for an emergency response deployment. Um, so we were given a map. They were given travel times on the map. They were given locations of patients with different um, issues that had to be brought to hospitals. Um, and uh, various resources like ambulances, helicopters, police cars, um, and they had to figure out how to deploy those resources to bring those patients to the appropriate hospitals and all in a timely manner. And it turned out that the machine learning system that learned on the remote control data set was actually able to identify the weaknesses and consensus of the team discussing the emergency response plan. Hmm. Um, and, um, and ultimately was able to cooperate or sort of interact with the with the humans, with the people, to improve the quality of their plan by almost 20%, um, which is really cool. Wow. Okay. So, how, well, yeah, I have so many questions now, but uh, so how <laughs> how long did it take you to train? I mean, it seems like a pretty complex problem. It doesn't seem like you had 
a huge amount of data. It sounds like you had a, enough data, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it's not like it's not like Google. You know, <laughs> right, exactly. the, uh, getting <laughs> getting any data from people is very time consuming in 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 comparison. The um, you know, the data sets are very small. So that's actually um, that's actually the trick in the research. That's like the creativity or the innovation. Um, when you design a machine learning model, you need to design like the features that it looks for. Mm. The you um, need to design like its structure, sort of like the scaffolding it uses to piece together its observations of us, so that it can do this, this job efficiently. And um, and the way we do that is we translate well-established cognitive models for how people do this into computational models um, for machines. So we look at the cognitive models for how people um, uh, uh, develop sort of strong shared understanding. Um, and we, uh, we translate elements of those cognitive models into machine understandable representations. Um, we look at the scaffolding that people use in their minds to try to piece together conversation. And then we design the, co- the structure of the computational model to mirror that sort of scaffolding that people use. Um, and the result is um, a machine that can learn relatively efficiently on relatively little data, um, much the way people do, which is, which is neat. Huh. And so can you give an example of how, well, how, how the robot picked up kind of issues or discrepancies among the two people talking? I don't know if you can give an exact example. And then, and how was the, it, and how was the robot trained on that? Cause there's no, I mean, it seems like there'd be unlimited number of ways that you could be, have discrepancies. So how, how did yeah, the there is an up? unlimited number of ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, so you have to start with, well, what can like a, what can a machine observe about our natural conversation and what can it observe automatically, like in real time? And um, what the cognitive models tell us is that um, it's really patterns in information exchange. It's these patterns of like question, response, accept, reject um, that really matter for shared mm-hmm. understanding. Um, and so, um, and it just so happens that there are existing state-of-the-art techniques that will translate sentence by sentence our natural language into these dialogue acts related to information exchange. So that's actually something a machine can observe. And then what we know is that, well, there are actually patterns to these different dialogue acts related to information exchange. We don't know exactly what those patterns are, but we know they fall in a few different categories based on the literature. So what we do is we, um, um, we, uh, we, you, we look at those dialogue acts related to information exchange and we process them into these like higher level meta labels, um, uh, related to information exchange. So, um, uh, and we, and we take those sort of meta labels from the literature. So that those so like decades of research and cognitive and behavioral psychology tell us that these patterns typically are useful in, 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 in answering this inference question. Hmm. Um, so then what we need to do is learn patterns of those meta labels. And so we train two machine learning models, one to, to learn patterns of weak shared understanding and another to learn patterns of strong shared understanding. Hmm. Um, so we have these two competing models, then given a new conversation, we feed it into each of the models and we see which one gives us the, the maximum likelihood answer. Um, and that's the one that we use to try to infer the strength of the agreement. Huh. Is it strong or is it weak? 
So yeah, how how generic is the model? Like, could you, could you take it to, let's say, into a business setting or, um, I guess, a military setting or any other setting? Yeah. So, Do you have to tweak? So it? that's yeah. like, yeah, that's like that's the key question. That's like the million dollar question. So the studies that our models are based off of are um, are looking at shared understanding in design tasks. So the remote control design tasks that those people were doing, it looks very different than emergency response. But ultimately, it's a design task. They're trying to figure out where to put buttons and um, who's going to, who this remote control can be marketed to. Um, the uh, And the emergency response task is a planning task, which is like a more complex type of design task. Um, very different content, very different domains. Um, and so, but those are the only two we tested it on. So the next question is, how well does this generalize? Um, that will it work for military team planning? Will it work for just our everyday meetings? Um, we hold millions of meetings a yeah. day in this country. <laughs> we all need um, wouldn't there. it be neat? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so someone once joked to me that this, this capability was incredibly potentially useful because not only could it help us figure out if we, we were not in consensus or if we, yeah, if we were not in consensus, it could help us, you know, get in consensus. Yes. But um, sometimes <laughs> in meetings, everybody's in agreement, but you're still talking. <laughs> so wouldn't it be wonderful if they could just tell us you're all in agreement, move on. <laughs> you're done. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. Have a, a robot uh, lead the meeting. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, oh yeah. So can, can you go to these other domains? I kind of cut you off, I think, or. Oh yeah, no, we're, we're still, we're still, still looking working. into yeah. it. Okay. Um, yeah. That's, that's our, that's our next question is to look okay. at how yeah, well it yeah. generalizes to other, other domains. Interesting. And I'm curious, do you remember an example from that uh, disaster planning where a robot picked up a discrepancy? If you don't, it's okay. But uh, like, any, oh, like a, a sentence or some, uh, some subject matter where it picked up. Yeah, so in, in that experiment, there were sort of four decision points that the team had to agree on. Um, and there was conversation around each of those four decision points. So sort of in, in what order should those patients be, um, uh, should those patients be rescued? Um, which hospital should they be brought to? What vehicles should be used for each of them? There's sort of okay. like categories of decisions that you knew you had to make for this domain. Um, and, um, and it was different for each team. There wasn't sort of like one consistent topic that was um, that was always the problem for all the teams, um, which sort of indicates like the complexity here. Um, it's just it, it depends on how the team's conversation evolves. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, w- it would be a different topic gotcha. each time. Okay, gotcha. Interesting. Um, all right. Well, I could ask a lot more questions about that, but let's move on to more of the um, kind of the mobile assistant, like interacting, having robots interact with uh, humans. And there's some, uh, and I'll try to remember to post these when we post your podcast. You have some interesting uh, videos on YouTube I saw where there was a robot and, he, and a human or a researcher, and the, the researcher would do something, and the robot would kind of wait and pause for the researcher to finish it, and then would go over and do a task. Which is you know it's, it was so cool you know it looked like two humans almost working together, um, so I, I imagine that's not an easy pro- thing to do, and so how um, you know 
you know, what's kind of the technology behind that? And that's a pretty broad question, but how do you even start kind of building a collaborative workspace like that? Yeah. So, um, so the, the challenge there, there's sort of two challenges that we've been working on. Um, uh, one is, you know, even, even when we're trying to formulate a plan, like, or have a machine help us formulate our plan, it needs to, um, perform inference or sort of try to figure out what we're thinking to be able to figure out how to help us. Um, even when we're working together on like a physical task like that, um, we have, we have a similar problem. So there's at every point in time for that robot trying to figure out how to work with this very unpredictable human, there's like, there's an enormous number of possible features mm-hmm. that could unfold. Um, so, uh, one is, um, you know, given there's an enormous number of possible features, uh, but then one of those features materializes, how does the robot sort of quickly figure out what its right next action should be? Um, cause it can't do it in advance. It can't like pre-compute everything it could possibly do for every way this could unfold. So there's like a computational challenge of how it does its thinking online fast enough based on the real time information that it's getting. Um, and then there's another part, which is that, sure, you can watch what happens and then try to quickly react to it. Um, that's sort of a needed capability. But but humans do more than that when we're working together. We, like, anticipate what, what our partner is going to do. Um, we sort of model that in our minds. And so how do we do that? So how can a robot watch the progress of a person performing their task and try to infer what their likely next task sequence will be, um, what the timing of their actions will be. Because if it can do that well, then it can not just react in the next moment, but it can sort of project into the future and make a plan around the predicted actions of the person. So we, we work on both those aspects, making the robot think quick enough as it sees what's happening and allowing the robot to make, um, make accurate predictions of what its partner will do as, uh, as the task unfolds. Okay. And, and how do you, yeah, make those predictions? Uh, and, and it must be, some of that must be from research and just how, on how humans predict. I mean, are you looking at research on how humans predict uh, humans' um, movements and actions and then trying to uh, somehow, um, you know, create an algorithm for the, the robot to do the same? Yeah, so um, we do we do uh, rely you know a lot on, on human studies where people do this well. So is there something that we can learn from that? Um, at the um, there's like in predicting like there's predicting like next steps in a task, which are sort of discrete questions, which is like the discrete chunk or next step that a person's going to perform. And then there's like what are they going to do at the motion level? Like how is their arm going to move? How is their body going to move? Um, and of course that depends on what their next step is going to be, um, and vice versa. So the problems are kind of intercoupled. Um, the motion level one is really interesting because, um, again, like people do this pretty well. So what, what someone explained to me was, um, you know, with the very small observation of a very small movement, like when you're looking at people that are fencing or people that are doing karate, Um, There's like a small movement of the body that they're able to sort of quickly like match to the what's going to happen next, what the gross behavior is. Um, And so um, it turns out that we were able to train a robot to do something very similar. We gave the robot information about like the biomechanical model of the person. um, 
and we trained it to look for these very small movements in the arm or in the walking motion um, to try to predict where a person was going to reach next or whether where a person was going to walk, if they were going to turn or not. Um, and um, there are prior studies that, that, that say that, um, you know, in a full motion capture system in like a very controlled environment, um, you can figure out if someone's walking is going to turn right or left um, with hmm. like 70% accuracy just by looking at like the their medial lateral velocity, sort of like the velocity off their um, midsection and head turn. Um, and so we, uh, we, we use those features and train the machine learning technique to try to do that. And we're able to reproduce those results, which is really cool. So, um, you know, a, a robot walk moving in, the, in a crowded space with a person can sort of track these small movements in the body of the person, very small, and figure out two steps ahead whether that person's going to turn left or right around that robot. It's very useful to the robot. Um, and similarly, with just like a few hundred milliseconds of arm motion, um, like a fraction of a second, the robot can predict with 70% accuracy where a person's going to reach on the table within mm-hmm. four quadrants. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time like walk, watching people walking in hallways and watching <laughs> people pick stuff up off of desks, <laughs> awesome. wondering like if I can do that, like do I know in a fraction of a second what they're going to reach uh-huh. for? And I'm not, I'm not sure I do, but what people tell me is that like people that sense or people that do karate, like they've like trained their minds to basically do that same task. So it, it, it is like a human possible capability. Interesting. And, and can you tell us how you train the robot, um, you know, in order to do that kind of the, the steps you go through to make that happen? Yep. Yep. So we, um, we, we start by using, um, the sort of a biomechanical model of a person. So we're capturing information about each of the links in the arm and the legs and the body and, um, and their relationship. Um, um, and, we use those as features in a machine learning model um, that uh, that performs like time series classification. So if you imagine like every joint in your arm or leg, you can sort of get like a trace of what it's doing through time. Um, so it's like a like a time series data. And what we learn is um, is a model, like a statistical model of multiple of those traces. So a person walks across the room a few times. We have a library of what those traces look like. Um, so we, uh, we then, um, and these are images, develop right? this model. These are images you're feeding the, the model. So the model, the model really needs the, um, the kinematic chain of the person, the links and the angles of the okay. segments of their arms and legs. So, um, so the robot needs to go from vision to try to process that, um, which is a hard job. Yeah. So our first set of studies, we used actually a full motion capture system. We put like the little dots on the person so that we could, with some cameras situated all around the room, very, very precisely pull this information out. Um, but a robot, like in a factory or going, walk, you know, maneuvering through corridors with people, we need to be able to do that from vision, um, on, on its, on its own, um, using its own cameras. And so that's actually our current research to be able to, um, design a technique for the robot to pull all of that same information, but from sensors on board rather than off board situated around the room. Interesting. Okay. And then how, all right. So, and then how about the, 
the algorithm for, to help the robot think quickly. Um, how do, yeah, how does that even work? Yeah, so, um, so there the, like, the computational challenge is that the robot needs to reason about time. Um, it needs to sort of unfold time into the future um, and look at sort of at every little time step what could possibly happen. And so if you're working very closely together, those time steps need to be sort of very small. And then that branching factor of like, well, this next time step, what could happen? At this next time step, what could happen? It's sort of like it, it turns into like a, tr- a very large tree of possible features mm-hmm. very quickly. And the problem is because you have to discretize time. So, um, so we, um, so in the lab, we work on developing algorithms that reason efficiently on time. Um, so what are, what are ways we can very quickly, um, uh, cut that search space, um, to try to, uh, prune parts of that space that is very unlikely the person would, uh, sort of go down because it doesn't make sense for the task basically. Um, and so uh, that involves designing like constraint programs and schedulability tests um, that work very, very quickly online where you query it. Like, is this a possible feature that could happen? No? Okay. Can we prune it from the tree? Is this a possible feature yeah. that could happen? No? Okay. Um, and so we, um, we sort of expand the tree of options. We use these tests to quickly prune it, and then we work with what's left. Gotcha. And so, with this anticipation and the kind of quick rea- reaction, you know, why isn't you know what's from a technical standpoint, what's uh, holding it back from being completely seamless experience, an amazing you know, like the Iron Man example. Um, yeah. What, what kind yeah. of challenges do you, are you facing, or in order to get there? Yeah. So the the areas that we work in, um, I mentioned in factories, doing some of the manufacturing, building planes, building cars. Um, uh, the, these are areas where the, you know, you, you have a person doing the task, so there's going to be variability in how the task is done. The person isn't a robot. Um, but they're still performing a structured task with a goal and with a, with at least a high level procedure that's specified someplace. Um, the, um, what's, what's much more challenging is actually, um, you know, a robot in the home or a robot in your workshop. Um, if it, if you, if you, you can't necessarily, um, uh, you, you're not going to cook the same meal every day mm. if they're what's helping you in the kitchen. Um, and it would be kind of time consuming to, um, to tell it in advance, you know, what that recipe is before you go ahead and do it. If you did that and you had that sort of structural information, then the robot could be much, much more helpful, right? Um, but that's sort of not the way we live our lives. Maybe we change the recipe as we go or, um, the interleave two recipes because we're multitasking and, um, the, uh, sort of these other environments that are less structured are still, um, like a very big challenge. Gotcha. Okay. So what do you need to, is it just a lot more training, more advanced algorithms in order to, let's say, have a robot cook your meal? We're going to the extreme here, but, <laughs> um, we, of course we all want that someday, but, uh, you know, what's, uh, what's necessary in order for that to happen? Yeah. So, so, um, we, in, in a lot of the work that we do that I've described, the coordination is very implicit. So there's like a task plan in a factory. The person and robot can't really talk right. to each other. Yep. It's like often too noisy. 
Um, but if you think about how people coordinate in a kitchen, um, you know, there's, um, um, there's a lot more than, um, just watching them and sort of guessing, you know, propagating forward in your mind what they're going to do. Um, their one partner might explicitly ask someone else, like, can you get the bowl from over there? Um, or, uh, can you turn on the oven? Um, there's, um, there's often, um, there's often like a lot that can be communicated through not just verbal information, but nonverbal information as well, like finger points. Um, there's like the, the way that people coordinate is very complex and very rich. Um, and we use these strategies effectively, even when the task is relatively less structured. Um, now that being said, we also have a whole lifetime of experience in cooking. Mm, yeah. So, um, like if I get out the eggs and I've been cracking it, like, I guess you would know that maybe I'm going to want to beat those eggs in a moment, um, depending, you know, so, um, you know, so more data, I think is, is a part of the recipe to, um, recipe to making robots are smart <laughs> enough to help us in these less structured tasks because, we're obviously using a whole lifetime of experience in, in doing this, um, but I think communication has to play um, an, an important part as well. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and you know, once uh, I mean, with your robots, I mean, the beauty of it in, in theory, they sh- should, if they're all networked, should keep getting smarter, especially if they're doing the same task in the same workspace. Video. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, are you? Uh, um, is that part of the design that I assume that you may have baked in? I, I think that's coming. So okay. there is a field called cloud robotics. So the idea is that, um, you know, you can train a robot in one area and it can sort of upload the knowledge that it's learned. And now other robots in other areas have those skills and those capabilities without another user training that robot for them specifically. Um, and so I think, I think that is the future for sure. Okay. And um, we're almost out of time here, but, I have a kind of a couple of questions, but maybe it's the same question too, is, you know, where, where do you want your research to end up in five years? Like if you had your vision right now, it would be in heavily in manufacturing settings and disaster response. And um, yeah, what's kind of your vision for your research now? Yeah. So the, the vision is um, even, even today we you know when, uh, we don't have many robots around, but when we do have robots around, they're either like teleoperated or they're explicitly commanded step by step. And it's, and it's hard because you, by doing that, you basically have to change everything about the way people are doing their work or living their lives to accommodate that robot. Um, so like the vision for what we're trying to do in the lab is to make robots smart enough to watch us and understand how we work, how we communicate, um, and how we execute plans and make them smart enough to figure out on their own how they can sort of plug in or integrate seamlessly. And um, and so we deploy robots in, in real factories, which is exciting. Um, we uh, I'm very interested in, in sort of these emergency response applications. These sort of time-critical, safety-critical applications are, are sort of where we're pushing the technology forward because the, the technology really has to be, like, perfect for them to add value in these areas. Um, you know, if you, um, uh, if you get, if you get teamwork right, when it has to be perfect, then, you know, in the kitchen, the robot's a little slow or it sometimes gets you the wrong thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's okay there, but what, what, what we're betting is that 
um, effective teamwork will translate. And if we can get it right when it really counts, it's going to translate into better team robot partners in, in the home as well. Uh, interesting. Uh, that's a great vision. I'm excited for it. <laughs> so keep working. And, uh, and, and what type of, uh, for the audience, what type of robots do you typically work with on these projects? Um, so we work with um, we work with a set of industrial robots. Those are for the factories, um, and we have uh, we have a next generation bomb disposal robot. It's got it looks more humanoid. Oh, wow. It's got two, two arms. It's on a mobile base, and it's meant to um, uh, dismantle explosive devices. Um, and then we have uh, we have a PR two robot, which is looks like um, looks like. This robot looks like it's from the Jetsons, you know. It's um, more of a research robot, but um, the uh, it's sort of more geared for working like alongside people and doing the more household tasks. And so we we try out the techniques on on various types of robots. Interesting. Okay. Well, unfortunately, I think that just about does it. This has been a a great uh, interview on robots. I really appreciate your time, uh, Julie, coming on our show. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited for uh, the 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 vision you're creating. It must be exciting, kind of working right on the cutting edge of what. Very exciting. Yeah. I'm biased, but I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, you know, you have the the internet changed a lot of things, but robots actually interact like physically with all of us. So it's a well, it's a next gen. You know, it's a whole another level of uh, how it could change our lives in some ways. Um, so that's, that's exciting. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks again for coming on the show and thanks, thank you. And, uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of flyer labs and, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye everyone.